You're listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Fathoms Five by Penumbra. Read by Dana Scully makes me feel autopsy turvy on AR3 and call me Scully on Twitter. Rated R. Part One. Never is a very long time. Warning. This story contains a graphic depiction of suicide. One can't believe impossible things, but the White Queen has her own principles. Alice in Through the Looking Glass Thou seest all things, thou wilt see my grave. Thou wilt renew thy beauty morn by morn. I, earth in earth, forget these empty courts, and thee returning on thy silver wheels. Tennyson, Tithonus When Scully was fifty-six years old, her faith in the natural order drew its rational conclusion. She arrived very early, in the morgue basement of the chief coroner's facility in the county of Los Angeles, bearing an old thirty-eight Smith & Wesson that normally resided in her car. It contained a single wadcutter target bullet. Somewhere off the coast of Washington State, the USS Waccamaw, late of N.S. Miramar, moved south, unladen, decommissioned, propelled by Salvatug. Scully paused just inside the swinging doors. The long room was empty and the refrigeration units hummed. The smell of coffee, a sweet note above the stuffiness of formalin and decay, and the presence of a body bag waiting on a gurney, told her someone alive was about the premises. She quickly chose a cold storage chamber at the back, turning on the light as she shut the polished steel door. The cold made the skin prickle over her shoulders. The bodies on the shelves in their black bags were silently intent upon her. She sat down at the very back of the chamber, her eyes on the drain in the floor. She had seen people use garbage bags, tarps, thinking about what would come after, but Scully was not prepared to think any further ahead. It was the ship she kept thinking of, trying to keep herself detached. It was the desolation of the miles and miles of ocean, and it was the emptiness of the ship, the dying ship, unpiloted, plunging on dead through the waters. She'd lain awake with the experiment before her, like an overdue assignment. And despite her fear and her despair, she also knew the old burn of curiosity. Only terror was left now. The 38 Super Police was room temperature and incredibly big and shiny, far bigger than the job at hand required. The muzzle, like a black eye, looked as big as a teacup. Scully pressed her shoulder blades against the wall, getting dry mouth. Do it fast. Naturally, there was no window in the room. 
She wanted a window to look at. She switched the gun to her left hand so that she could cross herself with her right and shut her eyes, breathing so hard that the gun barrel rattled against her temple. She considered the angle, seeing the coroner's diagram of entrance, trajectory, exit. Often people missed, or lived to tell, nicked the frontal lobe, lodged a bullet in the optic foramen. At the last moment, she jammed the pistol in her mouth, hands wrapped around grip, both thumbs through the trigger guard. She tasted machining oil. Click, said the double action as her thumbs got the message. The crash overtook her, and through the endless ricochet of noise, she only saw darkness, with eyes open wide. She couldn't feel her body. She was dead, head blown off. Nothing but death could be this far beyond endurable. The loudness inside her head was a bell of agony. The pain was so unbearable it was beyond pain. She was dead, brains on the wall. She was a pulpy glob that had once contained life. She quivered as the nerves played out. But the peace she had anticipated didn't manifest. She began to see colours, all sprayed and smeared, and then she could see herself down below, lying folded over in the small well of a room, blood circling around her head like the solid disc halos of medieval angels, a muddy splatter on the wall. She could see the wear on the bottom of this dead scully's shoe, see the white hand limp beside the bloody gun. A streak of smoke hung in the air above her, a mist of atomized blood settled. Her body seemed a distant thing, and for a time she gripped the hope that she was indeed dead. All at once she was diving, and the cold concrete floor smacked her cheek as if she had just landed hard inside her head. It was devastating to admit this to herself. Where was her death? The terror became more intense than her massive trauma. Terror and panic and her inability to move. She could only lay frozen, her head resonating in outward ripples, eyes unable to focus, blood warm in her mouth. Worst of all was the percussion pain in her ears. Then the desire to breathe came to her, overriding everything else. After a terrible struggle, she suddenly opened her mouth, and the blood poured out as she inhaled. She could feel her shoulder and her hip, heavy as stones, her head still pressed to the floor, cheek glued to the cement with cooling blood. Worst of all, she was alive. Scully was so cold, she didn't notice the traffic lights suspended in a green swag before her until the cars began to honk. The noise was terrifying, and it was as if she had been caught out, illuminated. People on the sidewalk turned to stare. There was probably a law about driving around with a gunshot wound to the head. 
California had a law for everything. She plucked her foot from the brake and the car hitched forward in the raft of commuter traffic. People were only honking out of impatience, not because she was a mangled freak of nature. She'd rinsed the blood from her hair and finger-brushed her hair over the back of her head, pressed paper towels to the squashy spot on her skull until it began to harden up. It didn't hurt, and yet it hurt in the manner of unbearable physical outrage, like being conscious during surgery. She had an initially grave, intraoral wound, a neat hole in the posterior oropharynx she could feel with her tongue. The explosion of propellant gases in her mouth had ejected unpleasantly through her nasal cavity, ripping along her sinuses. The tinny sound in her ears came and went, and she was, she judged, in considerable shock, the full complication of her situation still sinking in. She nosed her car into the shade of a billboard and sat steeped in the heat that washed from the roof of a car dealership. Before her, a small space between the weeds and a stucco wall yielded an interminable gush of humans tramping a given bit of sidewalk. She waited for the space at the top of her palette to occlude so that she would be able to speak properly, fading in and out, sleeping deeply through the numbness in her ears and waking with a jump panting like a rabbit run to ground. It was not that she wanted to die, but she wanted to be rid of herself, this part of herself that she could not shake. She wanted the option of being rid of it. She had only herself to look forward to, like a bug on her hand that she could not shake off. She had come to hate this aspect of herself, the lack of choice, the endless wearying prison of herself. She hated this hot, false weather that belied mood or despair, or the sleaziness of life. The place of plastic perpetual youth they'd all had to move to because of her. Mulder, a born Easterner, missed the East Coast the most, but Scully missed it too. The snows and rising waters and clear delineation between the seasons. They missed their main slate sink and the Washington Post the milky blur of salt on the windshield, and the taste of Poland Springs. In the early afternoon, she drove up the long curve of the slumped, dusty hill with her car windows open. Their house was wedged into a shoulder of the hill, camouflaged by madrona and low brush, forest fire smoke and valley smog. At the top of the driveway, Scully jerked the door handle and hung out of the idling car. Along the bottom of the lawn, a bit of the retaining wall had tumbled into the road, and William was sorting out the stones, trying to fit them back into place. Oh, Scully cried. The dog was watching her from the lawn, a wad of black wool, panting, his eyes on hers like he knew what she'd done. I've almost got it, said William, straightening up and smiling at her with his father's sly, sleepy eyes. The car's okay, he added. She turned off the ignition and stood in the road among the loose chunks of andesite. William replaced the stones methodically, in no hurry, making a puzzle out of it, 
placing shims to keep everything even. Periodically, he hummed a heavy riff that descended until his head nodded sharply three times, marking time. His knees were grimy, and he was wearing a horrible pair of salt-rotted sneakers she thought she had thrown away. It's just that your father built that wall, she said. Her attention was caught by the view. Half of their property's value stemmed from this view of the San Bernardino Mountains and this immense valley, often obscured in smog or fog-spritzed with sunlight, and caught, humming, in the circling-to-land area of a nearby airfield, a skirl of the Santa Ana winds. It was a dry, dusty sight, but the sense of expanse was gripping. She stood with her mouth open, breathing to calm herself. The view was wonderful when the atmosphere cooperated. The old dog's tail thumped against the ground beside her. He pushed his head against her leg. William was copying her stance, she noted with exasperation. William was too much like her. It was a difficult way to be. He was scientific to a fault. As a small child, he had soothed himself by counting. He crossed his arms in a way that was pure scully. She had long passed it off as a phase. With him, she thought of everything as a phase. Music was a phase. Arable was a phase. Even physics was probably a phase. Still, William had grown up with his scully imitations intact, his serious grey eyes, and a tendency to pronounce himself fine. At first, people overlooked William because of his quietness. His chest was thick for someone nearly nineteen, and his legs were scratched from racing through the chicory after basketballs. There was a fake tattoo inked around his wrist in Arable's writing. Mulder came out of his study, barefoot, smiling, a pencil behind his ear, and put his fingers under her chin and kissed her several times on the mouth. Hey, where have you been? There's a mystery, he said. The pencil landed with a cedary ring upon the Mexican tile. Scully smiled wanly and followed him into his study. It was her favourite room in the house, everyone's favourite room with its long flange of sunlight and the wall of bookcases, the organic shape of the adobe fireplace, swept out and currently storing a box of plastic binders. A cedar clickatat canoe lay across the beams overhead, its hull cracked and delicate as a husk. There is? she asked. Yeah, L.A. County Morgue called. They have you on camera coming in at 5.30 this morning. You didn't check in, and they have no record of you leaving. Mulder leaned over a map on his desk, penciling rapid marks that looked like football plays. Half of his concentration was on South America, she was relieved to see. What do you think it could be? he asked. He stuck a sunflower seed in his mouth, and she heard the shell crack. In the middle of the room... A ping-pong table held stacks of books and folders and manuscript reams. 
Scully suspected that the net down the centre delegated a primitive sorting power. In the last decade, Mulder had published two modestly received books, the second of which, Prosper Athena, had been reprinted in trade paper. Scully had surmised that he was the first author to be simultaneously reviewed in both the New York Times and the Fortean Times. From his X-Files days, Mulder retained a small but devout cult following. Nevertheless, the book found a larger audience than he had expected, and he had done a signing at the Strand and received a small grant from an obscure New Mexican literary fellowship, which mainly seemed to champion Guatemalan witchcraft. He was Castaneda with a twist. He was young and Campbell and Gurdjieff, and his books were incantory, like Mulder's mind condensed, like a Norse saga pouring out. Everything that she savoured about him was in these books. She had read each of them several times, keeping it rather secret, because it made Mulder feel strange when he saw her reading his book. They were magnificent, life-changing books, and it saddened her that they weren't that widely received. William thought they were okay, but he seemed to read them as he would an assigned text, without real enjoyment. Scully knew someday he would read them again, with terrible grief and anguish and wonderment, and then she knew that Mulder's books were important beyond measure. That's strange. They have no sign of me leaving. Scully set her keys down by the answering machine. A tendril of grapevine had grown in through the top of the open window and was feeling for traction on the wall. For a moment, she considered the possibility that she couldn't be captured on film, then recalled that she had departed through a service entrance, stumbling to her car with a dampened towel held to the back of her neck. She was no unreflective vampire or ghost. She wasn't like Leonard Betts, perambulating around, decapitated. Are they sure it was me? Yeah, well, like I said, it's a mystery. And I was thinking, maybe it's like some kind of weird interference. But where were you today, Scully? They called about the problem with Arable's passport. At least the morgue hadn't noticed the pock in the wall where she had picked out the bullet. The flattened chunk of lead was still in her coat pocket. She had shoved a steel gurney against the wall. They probably hadn't moved it yet. She had not done the best clean-up job. At the time, she had been dealing with different repercussions. The true aloneness she had always suspicioned in herself was now verified. The need to keep a low profile had grown with every passing year, and she'd learned to tone down her brightness. She had been groomed to be exceptional. Hardly anything was as important as standing out, making a name for herself in her selected field. But now, as time awkwardly continued to pass, the need to keep a low profile grew, and she pursued this just as decisively. Scully could be low-key, no longer a true authority. There were others who easily outshone her. She had learned to be mediocre. Mulder had stopped what he was doing, and he had noticed the way the heel of her hand pressed against her pocket. Scully swallowed. 
You know those hermits who talk to themselves, but it's like there's two people inside them? Two sides to the conversation? Well, I'm starting to feel like there's this me. The me that you know, who's out here in the world with you, she said, staring hard at his face. The light was going out of him. And there's this other me, who has stopped. Mulder's bright black eyes had a terrifying stare. Scully had not thought what the rest of the day would be like, following her finger on the trigger. She had known, deep inside, that she could not hope to get away with pushing one over on Mulder. Scully, what happened? Her head hurt terribly. She brought her hand out of her pocket with the flattened slug sitting in her palm. I think you know what has happened. Mulder's hand came over hers, folding it shut. Something came up inside him, a horror, a rage. She had a glimpse of his eyes as she stepped out of his way. He was gone from the room, and she heard his feet on the stairs. She put her hands on her hips and threw back her head to keep her eyes from brimming over. Driving in the dark that morning, she had told herself it had little to do with him and that she had to know. She had to know. But now, at home, her actions seemed completely selfish. She had not kissed him goodbye when she arose in the middle of the night. She dressed in the downstairs bathroom, the old dog behind her drinking deeply from the toilet bowl, something she would normally not allow. The thing driving her had an intensity like panic. Kissing Mulder and William goodbye would have been admitting to herself what she was about to do. It would be admitting that she didn't want to come back to them, because coming back would mean the awful thing inside her was real. She had looked at herself in the mirror, into the endless black horror of her eyes. The dog with his head in the toilet bowl chugged on and on. She left the dog in the porch, turning off the light when he looked at her sadly. She had refolded the rug in his basket, and then she went out into the night and coasted the car down the hill through the dimming stars. She stood in Mulder's study with the eight-foot blue whale fin bone lying across the hearth and the cradleboard unravelling on the wall. She stood against the couch with sunlight slicing in through her retinas and enhancing her headache. She heard Mulder on the stairs and after a few minutes saw him cut across the lawn and plunge off the low wall, scuffling through the loose stones still scattered in the road. He wore shorts, running shoes without socks, and a t-shirt of William's that had been on the bathroom floor that morning. He had forgotten his knee brace. He stopped and pointed the dog back toward the house, and she thought that his eyes glanced across her window. He ducked his head and set off down the dusty lane at a jolting trot. He bogged for a moment in a shoal of loose gravel, trod in place, then hit some hard caliche and began to move. White butterflies stirred up around him, and then he was obscured by weeds and dust and the tears in her eyes. A great part of Scully went with him, breathing in the baked air, rolling with the momentum of the hill. 
William's hand slid down the doorpost. Where's Dad? He went for a run. Scully didn't turn around. I would have gone with him. I think he needed to be on his own. She waited for William to leave her alone, her knees pressed into the old couch. Years ago, she had sat on this couch and fallen in love with Mulder. The leather was polished and thin with age. At the corners, it had cracked and the stuffing was beginning to protrude. Scully had thought about having it patched, but that would have been admitting that the sofa was getting old. When they moved it out to California, Scully had realised the couch was actually a dark green, something impossible to tell in Mulder's shadowy Alexandria apartment. Mulder was back. He was out in the arbour. When she leaned forward over the kitchen sink, she could just see his feet propped on the marble slab they used for an outdoor coffee table. They practically lived in the whispering leafy green room, geckos gulping in the vines. On the banquette opposite lay a paperback mystery. A tarp spread on the deck displayed a mountain bike William had taken completely apart a week before. When Scully leaned closer to the screen and mouthed his name, the toe of his shoe wiped irritably back and forth. He drew his knee up. In the green underwater light, she saw the long crossed muscles in his damp bare leg. Muller, I had to know, she insisted. He was silent. His leg jiggled slightly. On the windowsill before her was a rusty square horseshoe nail someone had dug up in the flower bed, a band-aid still in the wrapper, two unripe tomatoes, and a trilobite of the unlikely binomial nomenclature, paradoxes Mulderi, fossilised in limestone. Her eyes went immediately to Mulder's feet. Damn it, Scully, he said distantly. What if we never saw each other again? I think we both knew that wasn't going to happen, though, didn't we? Scully said coldly. William came into the kitchen behind her. He went for the cookies on top of the refrigerator. Scully turned around and they looked at each other. What are you staring at? She asked. You tell me. William raised his molderish eyebrows, chewing. You left your car in the road. I put it away for you. Everything's fine. We'll talk about it later, Scully said. She felt too exhausted to go on. She dispensed ice into a glass and poured lemonade over the crackling cubes. Could you take this out to Dad, please? He took it from her hand, letting his warm fingers rest against hers as if he could tell more about her that way. You know, I know you don't think we understand what it's like for you, he said. He put two cookies in his mouth at once. Well, please, not now, she said. But we're here too, Mom, he said, chewing. We're right here, right alongside you. Think about it. Scully gave him a bitter smile. 
that was the hardest thing to think about. She turned and went upstairs. She wanted to die, but maybe now it was just exhaustion. I want to give up, she thought. And even worse, I can't. I can't. In the bedroom, the bed was made. An open suitcase on a chair contained a London guidebook and a bottle of vitamins. The dog's cedar chip bed was empty. She went into the small clean bathroom and opened a mirror over the sink, poking through the cough syrup and hand lotion and hair products, looking for painkillers. She plucked out a prescription bottle containing the tiny microchip Mulder had stolen from the Pentagon an age ago, back when they were young and crazy and so desperate to go on. Scully held up the plastic bottle and shook it ironically. She had removed the chip from her neck a few years before, thinking of Marjorie Butters, hoping its minute integrated circuits were somehow responsible for her stasis. William had thought it a logical course of action to take. Mulder, however, panicked at the idea. Scully wanted to throw the thing away, amusing herself, imagining aliens tracking the chip through its sojourn in the Puente Hills landfill. But she conceded it should be kept on hand. Just in case, Mulder said. As if, at this point, there wouldn't be some relief in the natural event of cancer. What about deactivating it? Mulder had asked. Scully dropped the compressed slug in beside the microchip and recapped the bottle. A panic of her own went around and around inside her as she lay staring up into the high dormer eve, her head thumping with each compression of her heart, the day growing old around her. Worse than William going away to Oxford was the first whisper of possibility that she and Mulder might be forced apart. As she lay listening to evening descend, she heard Matthew's awful old car managing the hill. The car door slammed, then she heard the frog that lived where the hose leaked at the side of the house. She heard the neighbours over the hill who shared their driveway returning home. The distant sounds of trucks on the grade and airplanes going down the sky into the airfield. By now, the rusting Wacamole would be nearing the coast of Oregon, making eight knots, perhaps, bound for Brownsville, Texas, via Panama, bound for scrap. Down the canyon, a weed whacker sputtered on and on, and she heard the evening crickets, thought about the possums coming down the hill for dog food. Dark came at her, quick as a sneaker wave up the beach. Mulder's books were destroying angels of intense matter, dense as antimatter. They had taken his best ideas and philosophies and sieved them like platelets from his blood, skirmished their way out of him as he yawned late at night, waiting for the muse to leave him so he could go to bed. A book destroyed so much of him, but still there was nothing for it but to write it down, like X-raying his shadow to the wall. Mulder was long lucky with near misses, and the luck itself bemused him. He'd busted through doors at the last second, known eleventh-hour reprieves, 
gun in his hand and then the phone ringing, and maybe it was her. He could be alone again now, but he wasn't. Things had only gotten weirder after they'd quit the X-Files, contaminated as they were by some unnameable substance that dogged them like footsteps down a hall. None of it appeared to surprise William, born adept at the family malediction. In twenty years, they'd learned to weft the ribbon of normalcy about the warp of mouldy wet forest that sprung up wherever they went. William grew up on the California beaches, and his mother worked unblinking over her corpses, and his father wrote fondly of doubtful and unpronounceable things. Mulder had sat down to write, although he wasn't in the frame of mind required to summon each well-rung thought and connect it to the next. Maybe he would never write again. He would tear away the keyboard and upend the monitor into the India Hawthorne above the lane, forget productivity and let the panicking seconds wedge themselves between him and Scully, allow her to give up on him and turn away. She was going to anyway, eventually. Sunken into herself, forgetting him as each second that made him real and made her not became another moat between them until the crystal flecks clouded into layers and layers of glass, through which could be dimly seen what might once have been. Mulder made his mind blank, idling in his carved chair with a bare foot on the desk, book open in his lap, gaze lost in the shadows of grape leaves on the ceiling. In time he had grown to love the airy room that caught and held each day's sunny ration in its wobbling bowl. Hills fell away outside, hazy, bristling, smelling of forest fires. Ice-flecked cirrus rode high above. The adobe fireplace looked soft as a flannel sheet. The redwood shelves bracketing it were stuffed with his favourite books and curios. His best thing, his canoe, would go to the Anthropology Museum of the University of California someday. He had once liked to think of Ishii there, living in the museum. But now, the thought of that wild, ingenuous life, caught among the dry relics, struck him as depressing. Upon the move to California, Mulder had thrown himself into the pursuit of place, refusing to dismiss Los Angeles County on the grounds of superficiality, although they'd forfeited the deep, damp forests and steamy windows for a place of plastic, perpetual beauty. Adaptable, he revisited Bukowski and Steinbeck, trying to get at the heart of the feeling the area gave him. He reread The Day of the Locust, dabbled in Boyle, and scrounged up a copy of the Hawkline Monster. From Brochigan, he divined the spirit of Western ridiculousness. From Muir, he got its peace. The traditional rogues gallery had layered up on the wall above Mulder's desk like a spit paper nest. Among the customary clippings and tabloid fare were family pictures, mostly of William at various ages. William and Mulder at Machu Picchu, William on the vineyard, and the framed Strughold Mining Company photograph of his father and the others. A picture both terribly powerful and at once faded and delicate, and in which he also found William's face. There was a colour Polaroid with a strong potential for blackmail Mulder had come into possession of while helping to move Scully's mother, and which was so hilarious that even Scully snorted when she saw it. 
pallid Dana Scully at sixteen, swathed in moiré taffeta and half a can of hairspray, self-possessed, lip-glossed, gracing the nervous arm of her prom date. Mulder pulled a sunflower shell from his tongue and flicked it out the open window, for once taking no comfort in Scully's misspent pumper-truck youth. The only pictures that had been taken of Scully in the last fifteen years were by the DMV. Just out of nostalgia, he'd put up a sombre picture of Mulder and Scully, FBI, all unsmiling, suited up, and offering no hint of the life they would eventually live together, combining checking accounts, picking out a puppy, watching TV in bed with a feverish child sleeping between them. The sight of the picture brought Mulder to his feet, and, drawing himself together, he went up to check on Scully. He needed more time, really, but time was not something he could bend like hot iron into useful form. Time came at one like a sword and was past. The bedroom was heavy with sunset and Scully lay gazing into the light, a bundle of baskets and a Turkish salt bag hanging in the dormer above her. Her small bare foot just fit the length of his hand. He remembered her face the first time they'd met, when she took his hand and saw through his particular brand of scorn. He had watched hurt fill her eyes when their newly retrieved toddler looked at her without recognition, and he remembered her face during those first delirious episodes when he'd wrenched the perfect suit from her body and her composure had vanished, her expression shifting in unfamiliar orgasmic dissolves. She turned her head now and met his gaze profoundly with her outer space eyes. He watched her quick tabulation of his expression through the deep black specks of her pupils, like holes into her brain. Her arm was thrown out lazily, and her toes curled into his hand. Oh, Mulder, she said. He stroked the bony top of her foot. Scully ultimately belonged to Scully, and it had taken him twenty-seven long years to realise that even though he'd cautioned himself from the beginning. The same could be said of himself, as Scully had pointed out more than once. What are the kids doing? She asked in her sleep-sweetened voice, the damp pluck of her lips parting, making her real again. Shouldn't you be in the hospital? She averted her eyes. It's not necessary. She gulped, looking limp but not entirely beaten. She sat up, wincing. The only visible bits of trauma were a glimpse of gauze at the back of her neck, the damp towel across the pillow. The kids are making lasagna, he said, turning away. Matthew showed up with some bread and a bottle of wine, and thou beside me, singing in the wilderness. William's cooking. He could feel Scully staring at him as he fiddled with the apothecary scale on his dresser. What do I do about you? She asked softly. He turned his attention pointedly to her. You mean, do you apologize? Do you give me space? Do we act like nothing happened? I don't know, Scully. How would you feel if I'd done that to you? But you did do that to me. Scully said quickly. Mulder was nodding thoughtfully. 
You called me a bastard, he said. And that was about as far as it went. You can imagine how I felt, she said. Mulder nodded again. I can now. He found some change in the pocket of his jeans and tossed it onto the scale. I guess what this has made me realize is that I depend on you too much. To be perfectly honest, he had realized that he depended on her too much back in 1997, when she nearly hemorrhaged to death in the ICU, if not long, long before that. He'd realized it and hadn't done a damn thing about it. The vet called and said that Tasha's hip x-rays look fine, Mulder said dully. And you'll never believe it, but a big piece of black forest cake from that bakery you love has mysteriously materialized in the fridge. Maybe it's the best day ever, Scully said in a choked voice. Maybe it is, Mulder said sadly. Scully bathed quickly, the sky outside purpling with dusk. The hair at the back of her skull was matted, and she soaked it and washed it gently. When she dressed, looking full on into her own eyes in the mirror, there were no visible signs of trauma. Her hair combed down wet, loose shirt buttoned to the gold cross that lay in the hollow of her throat, cuffs folded back twice, everything as it should be. She felt delicate, as though she had been ill, but the headache had deserted her, leaving her head buzzing softly like a seashell. The nap had rendered her dazed and soft. Long ago, Mulder had painted the sign for William's bedroom door that said, Trespassers Will. More recently, he'd left the note that said, Clean up this mess before I notify the proper authorities. The door stood half open, and Scully frowned at the guitar laying across the unmade bed. William was oddly distracted by music. Scully had never been remotely musical. Mulder said that William showed natural ability, and that the mathematical applications of musical theory probably advanced his thinking. At the foot of the stairs, she looked into the living room. The girl, Arable Lewintel, was on the couch with the LA Times. She looked over the paper and gave Scully a tight smile with her V-shaped mouth. A fatherless classmate of William's, she'd been a semi-permanent fixture around the house since their middle school days, drawn to the Mulder family's intellectual and low-key family life, William's goofy sweetness and Mulder. Scully never quite knew what to say to her when she tripped over her in one room or another but she took an interest in Arable in the abstract and had ironed out a problem with her visa when she won an undergraduate scholarship to Cambridge. Arable was going to Cambridge to study trilobites. Oh, Cambridge. I hear they have a great trilobite program, Mulder had said. The summer she turned 16, Arable discovered a new species of trilobite in the Burgess Shale. She named it Paradox's Mulderi, as a gift for Mulder on his birthday. There had ensued a multitude of jokes comparing Mulder and fossils. At the kitchen sink, Scully was confronted by her nephew, who, grinning, threw out his arms, then hugged her warmly, dripping wet lettuce down her back. 
Auntie Dane, you're alive. I heard you were taking a nap. I never nap, said Scully, extricating herself. Some of his vigor had rubbed off on her, and she felt slightly more awake. Matthew shook a handful of wet lettuce over the sink. He wore shorts that looked like Pollock had had a go at them, a washed-out rose T-shirt, Harachis. Look, we're about to eat. Tell me what you want to drink. I got this great wine, but just say if you'd rather have water. Scully leaned over Mulder in his chair, her arm around his neck, and whispered, Actually, it was Modell I was calling a bastard. Ah, said Mulder, caught off guard and unconvinced, turning a bottle of salad dressing around so he could read the label. I can't believe you thought that all these years. Mulder shrugged nervously. She sat down, touching his cheek, stroking his five o'clock shadow. William was watching them across the table. Mulder, she said. Yeah. He reached across the table with the salad tongs, helping himself to a chunk of garlic bread. A piece of bread hit Scully's plate. Arable sat down beside William, crunching a whisk of raw spaghetti. Her hair looked dyed goth black, but wasn't, and her haircut closely resembled Mulder's. William's hair had grown so shaggy that Scully found herself combing her fingers through the ducktails every chance she got. William had had a strange, tense summer. He was about to immerse himself for seven years in physics, and he gave the impression of holding his breath and focusing on one objective, no matter what he was doing. He was going to Jesus College, one of just eight physics students accepted for the year. Scully was viscerally ashamed of the stress she would contribute to his last week at home. She did not think she could eat. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty. Amen, William said breathlessly. He had to know, of course. They were both scientists, and scientists could not obscure facts. Your glass, your glass, Matthew was saying to Scully. The Rosinante, Arable said, laboriously reading Matthew's T-shirt as he leapt up from his chair. Like it? Um, Don Quixote's horse? she asked. Steinbeck's pickup, offered Mulder, emerging from his shell. It's a bar, actually. I did the design, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Matthew was a sophomore at CalArts. Majoring in graphic design, stenciling surfboards on the side, cooking in a taqueria, and waiting out his parents' posting to a naval base in Scotland. Busy as he was, Matthew came often up the hill to their house, and he threw himself into anything they were involved in, whether it was painting the duck house or one of their noisy family arguments which invariably resulted in the consulting of dictionaries or scientific websites. He took his girlfriends to William's basketball games and helped Scully with some of her office work, did the painting for the cover of Mulder's second book, took the dog to the beach to play frisbee. Tash invariably came home from the beach jaunts smelling of coconut, a bandana tied around his neck, a partied-out glaze to his eye. 
What's your earliest memory of Grandpa? Matthew was asking Scully. When I was a baby, we were stationed in the port city of Nagoya, on Honshu, and everyone used to swear that there was no way I could remember this, but I remember watching him feeding seagulls. Beneath the table, Mulder's hand found Scully's leg. Arable knelt on her chair, poking mesmerized at the contents of her plate. Suddenly, she squealed and flicked something over at William. Idiots! The boys roared. Oh, good, said William. We weren't sure if it would survive being baked at 350 degrees for 45 minutes. He picked up the black plastic spider and sucked it clean. I can't believe she got it, he said to Matthew. I couldn't remember which corner it was in. That's not food-grade plastic, William, Scully said. Think of the carcinogens. Yeah, William, the toxic fumes of a baked plastic spider, Matt chastised. I'm thinking, said William, blinking his sleepy molder eyes. Well, this is the best carcinogenic lasagna I've ever had, said Mulder. Salad, Matt? Lasagna arachnid, an old family recipe, said William. Arable leaned over close to him, whispering something. No, you're a geek, William said happily. Math geek. Arable pointed her fork at him. Fossil geek. Art geek, they both said to Matthew. There was a thoughtful silence. Science geek, said Mulder to Scully. UFO geek, cried the table at large, pointing at Mulder. Arable laughed so hard that she had to lay her head on the table. Mulder smiled contentedly and had a sip of wine. Now what exactly is a geek again? Scully asked. Geeks bite the heads off things, said Mulder. Ozzy Osbourne was a geek. His children, alas, are merely gaffs. I'm sorry I knocked down your wall, Mulder. Arable lisped sweetly. Ah, that was you. She drives like Batman, said William, like Cruella de Vil. It's just that the dog was in the way. I swerved. It always sounds weird when they call us the Mulders, doesn't it? Asked William. Arable looked up but said nothing. Yes, it sounds strange, said Scully. It makes me think of a house full of Mulders. There's a molder hosing down the basketball court, a molder in the kitchen opening a can of dog food. A molder reading a Bigfoot newsletter, a molder taking a nap upstairs, Scully said. A molder in his den penning a best-selling mystery series, said Mulder. A molder playing Scrabble with another molder, said Arable, who loved to play Scrabble with Mulder. Ten molders finally getting the weeds cut down by the pond said Scully, and went upstairs, giving me a back rub. Mulder looked at her with interest. Mulder, Arable said as the boys cleared the table. Want to see the quinine I made? It took five months. I made it on a handloom. Oh, 
Here's Rug, said William. Terrible arable and the loom of doom. Shut up. It's geometric, said Mulder, feeling it with his fingers. She knit her music thingy a sweater, said William. She's like an old lady, knitting and watching TV. Shut up. It's William Morris. This part is llama hair I got off the fence. Alpaca, Mulder corrected, preoccupied. What's the difference between llamas and alpacas? He quizzed, holding the plate of cake up in the air, the dog begging at his feet. There was a hole in the knee of his jeans, and Scully couldn't take her eyes off him. Alpacas are smaller, they have better fibre quality, William supplied over his shoulder, rinsing plates. It's amazing, Harrible, Mulder said of the rug, and probably meaning it, if Scully knew him. Mulder had hung onto every plaster of Paris handprint, every noodle macrame objet d'art William had ever brought home from school. I wish I had a Colleen like that in my study, Mulder said. Arable looked distressed. I'd like to give it to you, but I already promised to my mom. This is the last time, Scully said suddenly. They all looked at her. I mean, next week Matt will be in Big Sur, and then we're off to Europe, so this is probably the last time we'll all eat together. Arable looked distressed, folding up her rug and keeping her head down. William was kicking his shoe against the sole of Matthew's foot. Mulder might not have heard. He was looking into the dog's eyes and smiling. Mulder plucked a kelp-like lasagna noodle from the sink's trap and shot a dash of Clorox down the drain, rasping out the stainless steel basin with a pot scrubber, even though he'd have a bleached sore throat the rest of the evening. He finished wiping the table, tossed the sponge across the room into the sink, and took a sip from an unclaimed and tepid bottle of beer. He leaned against the counter, ankles crossed, his legs still jellyfish from running too hard in the heat, his troublesome knee throbbing. The TV was on in the empty living room, and the dishwasher paused and clicked, keeping time under its breath. He sighed, intently savouring the moment alone, his thoughts fanning out and then circling back and homing in on himself, on the jangling sensation in his chest. He thought he heard music somewhere, but it was cicadas doing a loud fade-up. It was the Kitsunegari case that he'd had nudging in the back of his mind, not Modell that time, but the moment when she'd... Mulder closed his eyes. He turned off the TV before he left the house, Lisa Simpson was in her 33rd year as a second grader at Springfield Elementary. For a long moment, Mulder stood patting the doorpost and looking up the dark stairs. Then he went outside. It was a soft, black night, the yard light just touching the flagstones he'd laid along the side of the garage where Scully and William had planted lavender and cosmos. He walked around the side of the house in the dark, avoiding the wheelbarrow and the wadded garden hose. The kids were lounging in one end of the lap pool, sharing the tail end of the bottle of wine. Shit, it's the feds, Matthew said, 
William had his arms folded on the warm concrete, and he laid his cheek down and looked sweetly up at Mulder. Arable wore a black T-shirt over her swimsuit and kept her arms folded across her chest. Mulder had reached that happy age when he no longer cared if he appeared incredibly dorky in the eyes of the young. Scully thought he was cool, and that was all that mattered. The kids paid selective attention to him. They were instantly bored by his lectures, intending to dispense a profusion of wisdom accumulated over a diverse lifetime. Yet they were always ready to hear about the time he escaped from a Siberian gulag, armed only with a filed-down butter knife. William loved to feel Mulder's bicep and look at his gunshot wounds, count the holes in his head. He loved the story of tombs and the escalator. Below his woolly hindquarters, the dog's hind leg was wet to the hip, his hock skinny and black. Matthew tried to pull him in, said William. If there's dog hair in the pool filter, your mother will have a fit, said Mulder, but he didn't know why he bothered. Half a dozen dog toys floated on the narrow strip of water, and locust leaves eddied in the corners. The dog was the only one who swam laps with any sort of New Year's-type resolve. The novelty of owning a pool had quickly worn off, although, to his credit, not long ago Mulder had fooled around with Scully in this very spot while William was away at scuba camp. Scully, very hungry and bitey and naked under the moon, her hair slicked back, her wet breasts in the starlight. Mulder cleared his throat and in a burst of industry, knelt on the edge and grabbed at a baseball floating nearby, its horsehide gnawed through to the string core. It slipped slimily from his fingers. He leaned farther, and the ball popped up out of the water, twirling into the centre of the pool. Mulder stretched farther, calling, Wilson, for levity. The three of them watched him impassively. He had caught them, he realised, in the middle of a discussion or group thought. Matthew leaned back on his elbows, preoccupied, a shell choker around his golden neck, a clove cigarette stuck to his lip. Mulder had happened to be around when the kid was born and had known him his whole life. Matt was broadly sunny, easy to be around, and Mulder was grateful for the closeness between the two cousins. William was more down inside himself, always playing online chess, reading foreign comic books or making a spear with a flake of chert. As a half-grown kid with braces, he'd had a sudden smile that hurt Mulder's heart. Mulder had never really gotten over the astonishment of producing William. It made him realise all the more what Emily could have meant. Matthew's clove was burned halfway down. Give me that, Mulder said sternly. He tapped his bare foot on the tiled edge of the pool and inhaled until the roach crackled, letting the cicadas come loud inside his head. He wiggled his toes in the water. That's not the kind you hold in, Matthew said, grinning. I know, Mulder said, his voice squeaking amiably. Were you the slackers who painted class of 2020 up on the boulders? He asked William and Arable. William smiled with one corner of his mouth. We aren't the only kids who graduated this year, Dad. My God, Arable sighed, looking up at the stars. 
Who has time for vandalism? Along with William, she had spent part of the summer in a youth programme apprentice to public works, round-upping dandelions and painting over graffiti, quickly jaded by the prevalence of crushed soft drink cups, sun-cooked filth and syringes that seemed to fill the world. England would be different for her, Mulder thought. Much different. She would always be cold, for one thing. Mulder, cheering up, sank down into a crouch. His eyes met William's. He licked clove oil from his lip, feeling better, passing the cigarillo back to Matthew's wet fingers. If your mom smells this, I'm history. To her, we're all history, William said quietly, and the cicadas went dead for several seconds. Mulder glared at him, hurt beyond words, and rose and stamped away into the dark. The land fell away at the back of the house, and beneath the deck there was ample space for a defunct rototiller, a fibreglass kayak, a rotting box of floor tiles. It was also the perfect place for an eavesdropping child to sit and listen to the conversations above. It was there, Mulder suspected, that William had first absorbed the problem they had discussed or refused to discuss for years. I don't want to talk about it. There's nothing to talk about. At any rate, William seemed utterly aware of Scully's problem from the first. William and Mulder had never really talked about it, but there were other ways of communicating. Notebooks left lying around, articles appearing on Mulder's desk. Early in the summer, William had borrowed the neighbour's little brush tractor and carved a golden mean spiral into the weedy hillside below the house, carefully marking out its geometric curl with stake and string. Mulder could see the pale swathes fairly well when he climbed the little peak above their property, but it wasn't until it was mistaken for a crop circle and a local news station sent out a helicopter that he realised William's intent. On the evening news, the snail stood on the hill, a pale curl moving inward, the footpath a geometric demarcation across it. It looked like a maze, like infinity, like a gunshot wound to the head. Mulder spent an afternoon in the library at UCLA. In the sacred geometry school of thought, the golden mean spiral was a valve binding together the ethereal and material worlds. Aristotle called it the middle between two extremes. It spiralled inward infinitesimally, ultimately breaking the third dimension, a rogue Fibonacci sequence playing forward without end. It's the universal symbol for love. Scully said out of nowhere, while they were drinking tea in the arbour. William groaned. Hey, don't knock it till you've tried it, Mulder said. A few days later, he and Scully killed a snake in the spiral while the kids clambered nervously onto the bench with the dog. The snake faced them in a sloppy wad. Scully calmly pinned it down with a stick, and Mulder leapt forward and sliced off the triangular head with a shovel. The garlicky snake smell came up, and the snake's body doubled upon itself. Mulder looked at Scully and wondered if her heart rate had even increased. Fear had left her, and taken with it a whole dimension. Mulder sliced off the rattles and tossed them aside. 
He was out of breath now, just walking up the steps through the lawn, and coming up below the deck to the back of the garage, his chest felt squeezed. It was back, the jangling panic, the anger at something he couldn't confront and couldn't fight, could hardly name, and the dismay that William, in the end, was the one who would be forced into facing the problem. He was angry at Scully for being perfect and frozen, and impossible to wholly love as an evolving woman over a lifespan, in the close comfort of middle age and on into everything life brings, through everything, the true, vital, living Scully, whom he had somehow lost, and who had been replaced by a Scully who was afraid and trapped, who took the coward's way and couldn't admit what she was doing to the rest of them. He was afraid his heart would break when William left. William, who was like himself and Scully, synthesised, all brains and heart, so that Mulder had twice as much to worry about as he once had, with William out there, walking around, doing the stupid things that kids do. Mulder was afraid he himself had let the family down, by not being brilliant enough, after all, when it counted. He stared into the sparkling valley, his knees in the lavender, and glancing around caught sight of a silvery wet shoulder. His bare feet padding the warm flagstones, reflexively he took the boy's face in his hands and kissed him on his flossy head, which was nearly at the height of Mulder's. William's pheasant hair smelled of memory, of suntan lotion and tomato sauce, and a bass note, fundamental, of the salty sun-basted ledge rock from the beaches of Mulder's own youth. The smell of him made Mulder loop the loop in time. It's okay. Mulder's throat was tight. Water leached into the thigh of his jeans from wet swimming trunks, all the world ending and somehow the worst of it being the never-ending bits, which existed, he saw now, in tiny pockets here and there. The Turritopsis nutricular jellyfish and styrofoam and bismuth 209 and atoms that have existed since the Big Bang and still free float, on and on into forever, living their lives as larkspur and greenlanders and stop signs. There was Philosopher's Stone and the Holy Grail, direct mind-computer interface. There were fictional immortality precedents too. Hercules, Nosferatu, Freddy Krueger, Satan. William held on to him hard. Something happened, he asked into Mulder's t-shirt. Sometimes I'm just so troubled by a lot of things. Mulder tried to explain, and evade. Me too. William's forehead balanced against his shoulder. I had a little sister, said Mulder, desperately trying to catch sight of the stars in the dim smoggy void above him. I still miss her so much. William's head nodded under Mulder's cupped hand. Sometimes it seems like my life stopped when she left, and then it started again when I met Scully, Mulder confessed. Sometimes it seems like it still stopped. And then there's you. But you're not her. You're not Samantha. And it still doesn't make sense to me that I'll never see her again. What happened, Dad? William asked. He was not inquiring about the past. Light flecked a crescent of wet eyeball as he blinked. 
A wind curved through the patio, and William's arms went to wet goose flesh under Mulder's hands. William was born tuned in, and he wasn't missing anything now. Has it happened? He asked. Mulder stood in the kitchen with the dog watching him. He listened to a car start up and roll out of the driveway. The dog's kibble had been topped off. The kitchen was clean, the counters cleared and wiped, and it was this ordinary functionality that seemed incredible to him. Mulder's day had ceased to contain a motive reality, and he couldn't balance the disparate elements. The boy's mother put a gun to her head. The boy shot some hoops and loaded the dishwasher. The dog slept against the door, peddling through a dream. Could someone just stop? William had asked when he was eleven. It wasn't the first time Mulder just got up and left the room, and it wouldn't be the last. Scully thought Mulder's inability to discuss the issue was more damaging than the actual discussion would be. Mulder thought that it was just that, an inability, and not that Scully was so great about discussing these things either. That was the year William started reading Einstein. That was the year he became a physicist. It hurt to watch William throwing himself into this puzzle as if he were born to it. He's turning into you, Scully said once, and she did not mean it as a compliment. Mulder put his hand on the rail and walked slowly up the stairs, struggling against a great fatigue, and the aged dog laboured after him. In the bedroom doorway, he got his shoulder comfortable against the jam. William lay in bed with Scully, her hand clasped between both of his. The look on his face as he lay looking at her fingers, the same expression he had when he watched a fire on the beach, a meditative look. Scully turned her head, and when her eyes met Mulder's, he saw that he had already been shut out of the scientific part of it, anyway. And here was the real problem. This problem of metaphysics had become a matter of science. The old dog went to Scully's side and rested his chin on the bed, waiting for her to meet his eyes, focusing on her all the love he could muster. Mulder felt, rather than heard, the discussion resuming as he turned and went downstairs. <laughs>